You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Katie Tour, correspondent for NBC News. Tour's reports air across the network's news shows, including Early Today, The Today Show, NBC Nightly News, Meet the Press, and The Weather Channel. Tur is also the recipient of the 2017 Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Television Political Journalism. In giving her the awards, the judges singled out Tur's courage under pressure while covering President Trump's 2016 election campaign. And they also said that she demonstrated, quote, a complete fluency and mastery of the subject matter and an ability to convey it effortlessly while providing unique insight through her reporting. She joins me today to talk about her new book, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, which publishes September 12th from Day Street Books. So you're joining us in the um, recording studio where you've been recording your audiobook. How has that been? It's been um, a little awkward and weird, to be honest. It's... They're my words. I wrote the words. But reading them out loud and realizing that that a number of listeners and people out there in the world are going to be hearing me say them is is definitely um, a bizarre—it's uh, a bizarre experience in a good way, in a really good way. But I have to—sometimes <laughs> I struggle with how do I read Donald Trump's quotes. It's interesting going back and, and remembering how he said the things he said— when he said them, and and I try to mimic some of the cadence uh, where I can. I mean, it's fascinating how clearly some of his statements are still in my head. They've crystallized. Oh, I would I would imagine so. So tell us, how many days were you on the road covering President Trump's campaign? It's something like 510 days, something around there. God, I wish I could say that, you know, we self-medicated a lot, but we didn't have even that much time to drink during this campaign. There were a few occasions where I just I just lost it. There was one, um, I was in the Ritz-Carlton in Fort Lauderdale, and I just, I lost it. And this was a good day. I mean, this is the day the Marie Claire article came out, the day oh, that, that yeah. launched this book. Yes. And I, you know, I, I had a good day, and at, at the end of the night, I just, I started bawling hysterically. Oh, yeah couldn't stop myself, called my my boyfriend, who's now my fiancé, and I was like, I just miss it so much. And he's like, oh, my God, is she going to freak out when this is over and, and hop on a plane and leave me? There were so many things in this book that stopped me dead in my tracks. I did not realize that as political reporters, you all don't vote. There are some people who do vote, but um, I was taught early on by another political reporter in Los Angeles— that generally political reporters don't vote. And he said that the reason he didn't do it was because he didn't want to have a horse in the race and he didn't want to be biased in one way or the other. And I feel strongly that if I'm going to be covering a presidential campaign, what matters more than my my vote on that particular election is me being able to fairly deliver the news and explain their policy and explain who they are as a candidate and what they might be like as a president. I think that's really valuable. I think that is sacred. No other job is really like it, holding power to account. And I take it seriously enough where I don't want to be accused of inherent bias. Yeah. 
and I don't I don't want to feel like I am biased yeah. because I have decided who I think should be elected. So I didn't vote. And if I'm covering another campaign or politics or an election, I don't expect I'll vote again. You answered another question that I had, which is, of course, you know, why do it? It, it, it was such enormously hard work day after day after day. And, and I think that that's a very eloquent way to say, it. you know, this is it's a sacred act to go and, and hold those accountable. But I must say it caught in my throat that then you would have to give up sort of an equally sacred yeah, privilege, it is. which is to go in and cast your vote. And it is, it's a special experience, yeah. and you feel as yeah. if you are truly participating in, in democracy. Yeah. But then again, I believe this job is a fundamental piece of our democracy, and it is in many ways just as serious yeah. as oh, yeah. as the act of voting. So, yeah, you're giving it, it up, but I have the privilege of of being a journalist, and that to me is more important than casting a ballot. I believe very strongly that I should make every effort to not be biased. My only bias should be towards the facts and the truth. It was exhausting trying to keep up with the fact-checking and trying to make sense of a, a campaign that at times just did not make sense and a candidate who did not seem to care about the truth and care about um, making sure that he was upholding the values of our democratic process. And I don't say that lightly. He really trashed, in many ways, our system. And there are a lot of people out there who say, you know, our system was totally busted. It needed to be trashed. That's why they voted for Donald Trump. That's why they wanted to see him uh, go to Washington, because they truly felt like, listen, we've tried yeah. the other have way. have to set it on fire. Yeah, Let's set it on fire. And that's why they voted for him. And I understand that. I mean, the approval rating of Congress is low. The approval rating of the media is really low. You should still want to uphold this idea that we have a shared set of values and a shared set of facts. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, no one's going to come out and say gases are actually water. Right. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, that. Yeah, yeah. that um, White is black. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, just, you, you want to be able to say, we know these things to be true, and we're going to move forward from there and have a debate. Instead— the fundamental um, fundamental truths were were questioned, and fundamental truths were were doubted. And Donald Trump would say, "Your democratic process is is a lie, and it's a joke, and your ballot doesn't count, and there are dead people voting, and there are illegal immigrants voting." And he never had any proof for any of these things. He would just say anecdotally, "My friend Jim told me this," or "My friend." I don't remember his name, Bill, the, the 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 golfer that he knew, the German guy who stood in line and was surprised that he couldn't vote, but was appalled that the person who was, I guess, brown behind him could vote. How could they vote when they don't look like they should be able to vote when they're, this person was a, was a citizen? And meanwhile, this German guy is trying to vote in an American election, trying to vote illegally. And he would use that anecdote to say, this is how you know that your polling places are being overrun or undercut by people who shouldn't be there. And that, I think, is very scary. And this global cabal that he talked about with this conspiracy that was being perpetrated by the Clintons and by mm. the banks and by the media and these globalists who are trying to keep you oppressed. That's really wild rhetoric. It's not that we haven't heard it before, but we hadn't heard it before from somebody with such a platform and from somebody who was, you know, about to become the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. But the reason I did it, I guess the reason I you, you got up and you did it every day, is because it was important to try and to shine a light on it and to try and 
educate a certain portion of the public or the public, whoever was listening, about what was going on. And I think that that's important. And I think we tried, at least I tried to do as best I could out there. And I tried to deliver news truthfully, honestly, with as little bias as I could manage. And you know, a faithfulness to our institutions. It's important. It's hugely Even important. Even if people hate you for it. Yep. So why why write a book? Because I, if I didn't, nobody would believe me. I mean... <laughs> it's not a book about your childhood no. or you're, at, you know, you're the influential things. It's really this incredibly detailed snapshot of a very specific period yep. in your life. Exactly. The reason to write the book is it is it is history, and it's going to be important to have a document that says, you know, not going back and trying to necessarily find out why Russia was involved yeah, yeah, yeah. or where but, or investigate when we when the these things started bubbling up, but just a, a document that will faithfully say day in and day out, here is what happened. Here is how this happened. And what was it like? So what was it like? So uh, one of the things that stood out with me is that first sit-down interview that you gave him, that President Trump reacted so strongly, and your colleagues and sort of the whole media world were, were saying, oh, I'm, I can't believe what he's done to you. And I, re- I remember reading that you said, oh, you know, nobody's talking about my appearance. They're talking about the actual interview. Because yeah. in y- your experience as a female reporter, mm-hmm. so much emphasis had previously been put on your appearance. That was one it's of your— It's not me. It's, it's all women, all women in this business. For the first time when I did that interview, it was it was just totally content. What happened in the interview? What was Donald Trump saying to me? The questions I asked— the tone of the interview was all about what was there and not how I looked, which was refreshing and really empowering. We live in a digital age where you get your news and you're expected to talk about that news in the same moment you get it, like the Muslim ban day. Um, we get the, the the campaign blast where Donald J. Trump is calling for a complete and total ban on all Muslims entering the United States. And I, I, I'm, I'm basically like halfway through the the press release when my phone rings and it's MSNBC saying we need you to talk about this live. So you don't have the time to call your sources or wait for anybody to respond. You're just talking and you have to contextualize it with what you've seen up until that point. So Muslim ban day, the way that you talk about something that you don't have reaction to yet is you you take it and you say, how did we get to this point? Well, two days ago or the day before, President Obama was giving an anti-terror speech. So he's reacting to that. Why uh, would Donald Trump want to be acting to President Obama? Well, in the past, he's trying to be everything that President Obama is not, and he's trying to really differentiate himself by saying, as nuanced and diplomatic as he is, I am going to be as hardline and black and white as possible. So this was his version of that. This was him trying to portray himself as the strongest when it came to terror because he knew that the Republican base and, and, you know, soft Democrats even and independents responded to that sort of, this is a simple problem and we have a simple solution. Something that has been so complex over the years. Somebody, people just wanted to hear that he was going to be able to fix it. And that's what he understood. And so 
How do you do that? Well, you who is who is perpetrating terror in most people's minds? Well, it's it's the Muslims that are coming in, so I'm going to ban all the Muslims. There was no nuance to that statement whatsoever, to the point where we would call the campaign and we said at the in the moments afterwards, does this apply to American Muslims who might be overseas on vacation or visiting family members? Are they going to be able to come back into the country? What about Muslim service members that are overseas and 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 um, serving the country? And they didn't have an answer for it. They didn't know. I mean, that's that's not a well thought out plan. They didn't know. This is just a blanket yeah. statement that he made in that's order to get the focus back on himself and to, to turn the tables and to bring himself farther to the right. And it got the focus back on him. Yeah. Certainly. So putting the focus back on you and this book, unbelievable. What were your writing habits when you sat down to do it? Because did you oh start God. with a co-writer and then decide to do it yourself? What happened? Um, I can't remember. Yeah. So I I hired this amazing, amazing ghostwriter. Wonderful great writer. But ultimately, it's a book that just couldn't be ghosted. I mean, this yeah. is a book about it's so an experience. Pri- it's so I, it would have taken yeah. me more time to, 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 to translate to, to, it to, translate it yeah, to yeah, the yeah. person than, than it would to write it. And that's what I was finding where it just, it, I didn't have the time to sit there and tell the ghostwriter what I, what I thought and then, you know, proof it again. Proof it. Yeah, it, yeah, was yeah. Just, it just took too much time. And also it was, it just, it could never, nobody can tell that my story, but me, because yeah. no one lived it. Yeah, yeah. But me, so I, um, I made the terrifying decision of of just taking so it back over. So you ditched the ghostwriter. I ditched the ghostwriter. You, you got up at five every morning. I stayed up very late every you night. You did it in the evening. I'm not a morning person. Okay, so you oh did my it on God, the I other can't end. get up. I can't get up a minute before I have to. Yeah, get I'm up. not sure why I asked that question because there are so many times in the book where you share. I that, hate mornings. You share that challenge. I hate mornings. I try to put a good face on it. I hate mornings. <laughs> uh, I'm just. I am just bleary in the mornings. I don't. Ca- my best ideas don't start to hit me until like five or six in the day. Anyway, so I I uh, nights I stayed night. up nights, and then every weekend I just sat in front of a computer. I didn't change out of my pajamas most weekends. I'm like I showered most weekends. I was <sighs> gross. I stopped going to exercise classes. I complained so in the tired. campaign about gaining so much weight. I gained more weight Is after right? the campaign than I did while I was working. My poor, long suffering fiance. He proposed in January, and then I just turned into a complete pile of mush after that. He proposed that. in January. I fired the ghostwriter <laughs> middle of January, and that was the last time I saw him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. God knows if he'll like me now well, that I'm going to have some time again. It's a great book. Think of yourself as a book writer now, because I know you do a ton of other types of writing, mm. but you got to th- put yourself in your book writing mode. My most marked characteristic, I like to— um, I like my analogies, <laughs> my metaphors. I also, I, I I like to get a little weird. Some of the writing in the book is just a little weird. There's some real well, surreal so? what do you moments. Mean? Well, I mean, I talk about an ambient um, induced, you know, hallucinations at one point in the book. I And I talk about— It doesn't seem weird to me at all, given what happened to you that day. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, every day is But there's, like, there's the some really, like, just bizarre moments in the book. There's that, and then there's, um, you know, there's me dropping fish lyrics in the middle of the book that, and like, getting well, yeah, lost What's up fish. with that? And you're still doing that, aren't you? And you're, you're, you're still, you? You're still—you have—who's the reporter them. that you do it with? I loved them, Jake Sherman, political reporter. I loved fish in in high school and college, and I moved to New York and kind of got cut away from it just because none of my friends here liked them. And it was I got into news. News people don't like fish. Or at least I didn't think they did. And um, 
suddenly it was it was on this campaign where I was so stressed out all the time I couldn't sleep. I started playing um, Billy Breeze, which is a like pretty chill fish album. I don't like, know. My California's going to come out. But it's pretty, like, super chill. <laughs> um, anyway, it would, like, it would, like, put me to sleep. And I ended up just sticking my earphones as deep into my ears as I could before Donald Trump would get on stage because this that freaking song. rally oh my gosh. <laughs> playlist, I'd heard it a thousand times. It's, like, you know, on loop. I, I can't hear any more Pavarotti. I can't hear yeah, any more, oh, I'm sure. you know, Tiny Dancer, I, you know, Billy Joel. I was just done. Uptown Girl, shoot me in the face. I can't hear it again. And so I'd stick it deep in my ears, and I would just, like, kind of jam out on this, like, trippy jam band. And people would be screaming at us in the press pen. I couldn't hear it. I couldn't hear it. That's why I look—I have a smile on my face. I couldn't hear it. So anyway, it helped me survive. You needed fish. And now I I have, like, a newfound obsession with them. It's kind of sad and a little bit weird. I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to them, I'm sure. (laughs) All right. What is your current state of mind as a writer? So happy that it's finished. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're happy to. We're really happy. You it's know, exhausting. It's Holy exhausting. Cow. All right. So the book is embargoed. So you know, not a lot of people have read it. But everybody that I know at the you know, because we we ride the elevators or we're in in and out of meetings, and we're always saying, "Oh, what are you reading?" With hundred percent positive. Everybody's really? really very excited. Oh, I hope so. They're very. It's honest. It, it's really honest. It's great. Oh, I, you know, I wanted to ask you about that picture about the cover photo. How was that chosen? It's a very interesting photo. Um, it's a great photo, and I I. Wish that I had the photographer's name off the top of my head, but I, I'm blanking. Anyway, he uh, was doing a lot of campaign work where he was doing candid moments of the politicians and their supporters and just the, the circus surrounding 2016. And he uses this really bright flash. Yeah, because it's a very contrasty kind yeah, of— Yeah, it's almost like a film noir yeah. or a paparazzi in the 1940s yeah, yeah, exactly. kind of shot. And I love it because I think it captures the moment. It's me kind of looking, you know, trying to make sure that Donald Trump is in frame and him trying to explain to me about why his hotel is so wonderful. I think that was the moment. And I'm carrying a bunch of gear, and my jacket is— And is, you're, you're kind of—yeah, that's exactly it. You're, you've got your arms crossed, and you've got things in your in your arms, and— And we're surrounded you, by you dozens of this, other journalists. This look of sheer determination on your face, which is <laughs> like—and it just—then you read the book, and you think, that must have been your face for those 500 days, because it was just, you know, to get—to to plow through it. And, and it's—I think it's the perfect— it's the perfect cover photo. Thank you. For I the appreciate book. that. Unbelievable. My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, which publishes September 12th by Day Street Books. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.